0: Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus saves. May this be our boast and our rally cry and our plea and our message and our joy and our peace and our rest and our hope and our victory that Jesus saves. O oh, Lord, hold us fast to that simple message The message that makes life livable, that makes life abundant, that makes us, Lord, ready to live eternal life with you as your children, washed in the blood of the Lamb, indwelt with your Spirit, children of God. We thank you and praise you, Lord. We ask that you would bless the preaching of your word now, Grant clarity in the pulpit, conviction in the pew. We pray in Jesus' name, Amen. The title of this morning's message is "Salvation and Abomination." Salvation and abomination from Genesis chapter eighteen, verses sixteen through chapter nineteen, verse thirty-eight. Read with me there, please. Genesis eighteen. Verse sixteen. Then the men rose from there and looked towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to send them on the way. And the Lord said shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing, since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord, to do righteousness and justice that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. And the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me, and if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham stood there before the Lord. And Abraham came near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were fifty righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should not be as the wicked. For, far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? So the Lord said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. Then Abraham answered and said, Indeed now I who am but dust and ashes have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose there were five less than fifty righteous. Would you destroy all the city for lack of five? So he said, if I find there forty-five, I will not destroy it. And he spoke to him yet again and said, suppose there should be forty found there. So he said, I will not do it for the sake of forty. Then he said, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty should be found there. So he said, I will not do it if I find thirty there. And then he said, Indeed, now I have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 should be found there. So he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 20. Then he said, Let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. But once more, suppose 10 should be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 10. So the Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham. And Abraham returned to his place chapter 19 now the two angels came to sodom in the evening and lot was sitting in the gate of sodom when lot saw them he rose to meet them and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground and he said here now my lords please turn into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet then you may rise early and go on your way and they said no But we will spend the night in the open square. But he insisted strongly, so that they turned into him and entered his house. Then he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Now before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us, that we may know them carnally. So Lot went out to them through the doorway, shut the door behind him and said, Please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. See now, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please let me bring them out to you and you may do to them as you wish. Only do nothing to these men, since this is the reason they have come under the shadow of my roof. And they said, Stand back. Then they said, This one came in to stay here, and he keeps acting as a judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near to break down the door. But the men reached out their hands and pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they became weary trying to find the door. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here? Son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, and whoever you have in the city, take them out of this place, for we will destroy this place, because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who had married his daughters, and said, get up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. But to his sons-in-law, he seemed to be joking. When the morning dawned, and the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. And while he lingered, the men took hold of his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters, and the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. So it came to pass when they had brought them outside that he said, escape for your life. Do not look behind you nor stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains lest you be destroyed. Then Lot said to them, please no, my lords. Indeed now your servant has found favor in your sight and you have increased mercy which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains lest some evil overtake me and I die. See now this city is near enough. To flee to? And it is a little one. Please let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my soul shall live. And he said to him, See, I have favored you concerning this thing also, and that I will not overthrow this city for which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen upon the earth when Lot entered Zoar." Then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. So he overthrew those cities, all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But his wife looked back behind him and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. Then he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain and he saw and behold the smoke of the land which which went up like the smoke of a furnace. And it came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had dwelt. Then Lot went up out of Zoar and dwelt in the mountains and his two daughters were with him for he was afraid to dwell in Zoar and he and his Two daughters dwelt in a cave. "'Now the firstborn said to the younger, "'Our father is old, and there is no man on the earth "'to come in to us, as is the custom of all the earth. "'Come, let us make our father drink wine, "'and we will lie with him that we may preserve "'the lineage of our father.' "'So they made their father drink wine that night, "'and the firstborn went in and lay with her father, "'and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose.' It happened on the next day that the firstborn said to the younger, Indeed, I lay with my father last night. Let us make him drink wine tonight also, and you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve the lineage of our father. Then they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. And the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the people of Ammon to this day. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Back to the beginning. Genesis chapter 18, verse 16. Again, the title of this message, salvation and abomination. Our text opens up with the Lord talking within the Godhead and with the two angels regarding Abraham and his plan for Abraham. Verse 18, Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him, therefore should we tell him what we are doing? Should we inform him of the judgment that we are going to bring upon Sodom and Gomorrah. And the Lord determined that he would inform Abraham of this judgment. And of course, the Lord in his sovereignty, the Lord in his omniscience knew what he was going to do. Oftentimes the Bible speaks in terminology that we are familiar with, that in a sense, humanizes God. We need to be careful to rightly divide Scripture, interpreting Scripture with Scripture. God does not change His mind. There are no variations within God or within God's plan because God's will is done. God's will is always working out perfectly because He works all things according to the counsel of His will, says the Holy Scriptures. Here we see... The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave, says verse 20, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me, and if not, I will know it. Again, this is phenomenological language of a sort. The Lord is omniscient. The Lord is omnipresent. He already knows. He does not have to show up in... A Christophany, he does not have to show up in a pre-incarnate form in the person of Jesus Christ. He does not have to send angels. The Lord is omnipresent and omniscient, but he chooses to do so. He chooses to go bodily on this occasion. The interaction between the Lord and Abraham is unique. It's instructive in that Abraham, in the very least, is attempting to rescue his nephew. His nephew, whom you will recall from sermons past, took the very best land. His nephew, who did not humble himself and honor his uncle, but rather took the best land for himself, and yet Abraham still loves him. Abraham is still concerned for his life and his soul and those of his family members. And I think at the heart of Abraham's plea is an attempt to rescue his nephew and his nephew's family. But beyond that, we can't deny that it would seem that Abraham has a heart of mercy for his fellow fallen human beings. And in that, Abraham is exemplary. There are many things in Abraham's life that are not I'm happy to say this is a right heart. One sinner crying out to God that he might have mercy upon other sinners. That is a great pattern. Now again, the interaction between Abraham and the Lord is one that is seemingly very human and that God is changing his mind repeatedly. And yet the Lord knew exactly what the Lord was going to do before the conversation even took place. Much like when the Lord sent Jonah to preach judgment in Nineveh. Jonah was confident that regardless of the message he was sent to preach, that God was going to have mercy on them through this message. And so he didn't want to go preach. Jonah had the opposite heart of Abraham. Jonah forgot that he was a sinner Saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the coming Christ alone. And so Jonah would have the Ninevites to perish. Now the Lord had other plans because the Lord's will will be done. So Jonah became fish food and fish spit. And he showed up on that beach and he went to Nineveh and he preached. And God relented, repented even, it suggests. But of course, the Lord knew what he was going to do. He knew that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. Thus, he sent his prophet and he granted them repentance. And the entire city-state was saved, at least for a generation. And judgment would come upon the next generation after them. And so the Lord has a plan here, a plan of mercy upon sinners. Now, the, the discussion between Abraham and the Lord is whether or not there are any righteous there, 50 righteous, 45 righteous, 30 righteous, 20 righteous. Far be it from me to speak again, Lord. But 10? 10 righteous? Which shows you that Abraham had some knowledge of the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah and little confidence that there would be more than 10 righteous. But what we find is his confidence that there were even 10 righteous was false. Very much so. And so the Lord says in verse 32, then he said, let not the Lord, this is Abraham speaking, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. But once more, suppose 10 should be found there. And he, the Lord said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 10. So the Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham. And again, this is capital L-O-R-D. It's Yahweh. It is God, the son, a Christophany, a pre-incarnate visitation of the Lord Jesus the one mediator between God and men. Chapter 19, Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. We find Lot sitting in the gate as the leaders, as the influential men, as the powerful men of the community would do. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground, and he said, Here now, my lords, please turn to your servants' house and spend the night and wash your feet." Then you may rise early and go on your way. Lot seems to be in a panic from the get-go. He seems to be in a panic from the start. He immediately rises. He immediately approaches them. Similarly to how Abraham arose when the Lord Jesus came with these same two angels earlier in in chapter 18. Only he is very insistent that they come to his house. And it would seem... He's also very insistent that after they stay in his house overnight, they quickly move on because he knows the danger they will be in. And you recall from chapter 18, these two angels came in the likeness of men. And no doubt they came in the likeness of powerful men, handsome men, which is the wrong place and the wrong form to take in Sodom. The angels respond in verse two at the end, no, but we will spend the night in the open square. But he insisted strongly, so they turned into him and entered his house. Then he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate. Now before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house. And they called to Lot and said to him, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out that we may know them carnally. And here the abomination begins a prop, horrifically. The abomination begins to unfold. Or does it begin here? Does it unfold from here? Actually, we would have to go all the way back to the garden, all the way back to when Satan came and tempted Eve and Adam with her. All the way back to where Adam failed to protect his wife from Satan's deception, from Satan's lies. All the way back to the fall of man when sin entered in to mankind through Adam and Eve and thus was passed on to all their descendants. And sin begets sin begets sin. And unchecked by the grace of God, unchecked By the word of God, sin runs rampant. It becomes horrific. It becomes nightmarish. It becomes perverse. It becomes abomination. And that's what we find here. Generations after Adam and Eve, the... First occurrence of what the Bible terms and what you need to term, what I need to term, what Christ's church needs to term, abomination. Gross perversion of God's created design. Men seeking to lie with men as a man lies with a wife by God's design. And only with a wife. And so they want to know them carnally. Now, there are those deceivers, false teachers, that rise up today and say the real sin of Sodom and Gomorrah and the real reason God rained down fire and brimstone upon it and destroyed it was because of their lack of hospitality. You see, they weren't hospitable to the angels. It wasn't sodomy. It wasn't homosexuality. It wasn't perversion. And it certainly wasn't anything anyone should call abomination. It was the lack of hospitality. Hospitality. And so be careful to be hospitable, my friends, lest fire and coals rain down upon you. That is a deception. That is a lie and easily seen so. This word here in the original language, no, does not always mean carnal relations. It does not always mean sexual relations. However, context dictates its meaning. And in this context, it is clearly, certainly, undoubtedly, and absolutely (laughs) sexual relations. They wanted to know the angels sexually. Like Adam knew Eve and she conceived. Same word. Only there will be no conception here. See, in God's design, there is conception. In God's design, this celebration of the marriage covenant, a lifelong Commitment, one man, one woman for life becoming one flesh produces life. And that life, that child, every child is the genetic mix of mother and father. Again, a testimony to their marriage covenant being an indissoluble union. As Malachi speaks of regarding divorce, it says to a man who is ill-treating his wife and divorcing her, that you are ripping marriage asunder. And that's what divorce does. It like rips children in half. It rips their hearts in half. It rips their hope in half, their joy in half. These children that are a picture of your covenant and that they are the perfect genetic union of father and mother. The only righteous place for sexual union is in the context of marriage, in the marriage covenant that God has designed to produce life, to produce joy, to produce great love. And in that context, it is powerful. It's a powerful blessing. Outside of that context, it is powerful. It's a powerful curse. I often liken it to nuclear power. Nuclear power in a reactor can supply energy to a city or state. Nuclear power in a bomb can wipe out a city or a state. And so these sodomites, the men of Sodom, that's where the term comes from, want to know the angels carnally. Verse 6, So Lot went out to them through the doorway, shut the door behind him and said, Please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. See, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please let me bring them out to you and you may do to them as you wish, only do nothing to these men, since this is the reason they have come under the shadow of my roof. We rightly term... We biblically term sodomy and homosexuality as abomination. I would say in this text there are multiple abominations, and we just witnessed another one. Beware of your environment. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good character. Lot is horrifically corrupted. Lot still sees, rightly, that the abomination that the men of Sodom want to commit against the angels cannot happen. It cannot happen. But Lot's Lot's character, Lot's judgment, Lot's mind, even Lot's fatherly instincts are radically corrupted. And that he would step outside the door not with a sword in hand, not with a staff, not with his fists if he has to, to fight off these animals from raping the angels, but rather he steps out like a coward. He steps out as an anti-father to offer up his daughters to try to satisfy their carnal appetites. This is abomination, fatherly abomination, shameful, ugly. He says, please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. At least he calls it wickedness. But my brethren, he's come to identify too closely with them. He should never have moved toward Sodom and Gomorrah. You recall that he initially moved toward them because that was where the the lush land was, the, the green land for his many flocks. And then he moved further, and then at last he finds himself in Sodom and Gomorrah. And it rots his heart, his mind, his soul. My brethren, do not do so wickedly. Beware of compromise, brothers and sisters, where you can still call one thing wicked, but you're, you're entirely too close to the people committing the wickedness, and so you don't even realize how grossly compromised you have become. You're just blind to it. Verse 8, see now I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please let me bring them out to you and you may do to them as you wish. Only do nothing to these men since this is the reason they have come under the shadow of my roof. Now there are those that that defend this in some manner or another saying that he, he feared, Lot feared, that greater judgment would come on them all, that they would all die, the wrath of God would fall on them. And he saw it foolishly, wrongly. He saw this as an avenue out that if he let these sodomites sodomize the angels, the wrath of God's coming on us all is the only way any of us might live. I won't offer up that defense. (laughs) It's wicked. It's vile. It's anti-fatherhood. It's abomination. He lived so close to their abomination, it infected him like a disease. I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please let me bring them out to you, and you may do to them as you wish, only do nothing to these men, since this is the reason they have come under the shadow of my roof. In other words, I have sworn to protect them. Well, then do protect them. Do. Stand up like a man and protect them and lay down your life if need be. Call on these sons-in-law to stand up like men. That's another issue. Who are these sons-in-law when the daughters are said to be still virgins? What all is going on there? I don't really know. Now, in the Jewish world, historically, there was a betrothal period of a year. And perhaps that's what's taking place here. They're betrothed, and thus they're married, like Mary and Joseph were betrothed and married, even though they had not yet had relations, and thus Jesus was virgin-born. That may be what's taking place here. However, seeing the wretched nature of these sons-in-law, seeing the wretched nature of these daughters that soon unfolds, I do question what exactly is going on there. And seeing how corrupted Lot has become in his judgment, and his sense of right and wrong, I question how corrupt his daughters have become who were raised in Sodom. And these are men of Sodom that are the sons-in-law. Speculation. We could speculate wildly. We could speculate a little. We don't want to go too far with it. But there is definitely corruption in these young men and in these daughters, which does not excuse in any way what Lot does. Abomination produces more abomination. Lot doesn't stand up to protect the daughters. Where are the sons in law Wait, wait, these are our betrothed wives. You're not going to set them outside. Where are they? This is a failure in manhood, an abominable failure in manhood. That's what you find here, an abominable failure in manhood, in the Sodomites, in Lot, and in these so-called sons-in-law's. Variations of abomination, but abomination nevertheless. Now God's word interprets God's word. The Lord is in no way in this narrative sanctioning this as an example to model. The rest of God's word would condemn this anti-fatherhood, this anti-manhood harshly. How are we to love our wives as Christ loved the church? How did Christ love the church preeminently? He died for the church, to protect the church from sin and judgment. That's how we're to love our wives and our daughters and women in general and our neighbors as ourselves, not to offer them up to untold horrors. So, back to the discussion between Abraham and the Lord. What if there's 50, 45, 30, 20? Okay, 10 righteous. Is Lot righteous? Or his daughter's righteous? And where's Mrs. Lot? Does she not have a voice? There doesn't seem to be much righteousness here. The New Testament speaks to Lot's righteousness. Shockingly in light of this text before us, 2 Peter 2, verse 7 says, God delivered righteous Lot who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked for that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. And it is true. God's word is true. Is there tension between Genesis 18 and 19 and 2 Peter? Yes. Can the tension be resolved by what we see in Genesis 18 and 19 and 2 Peter? Yes. God delivered righteous lot. How is anyone righteous ultimately? By grace alone alone through faith alone. That is our only claim to righteousness, ultimately. And Lot pushes that to the extreme. In fact, so far to the extreme, I'm extremely uncomfortable. And you should be. And yet, even as the thief was saved on the cross, Lot is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, to give hope to all wretched Sinners. God delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. Lot himself calls this abomination of sodomy and the sodomites wanting to sodomize the angels wicked. And yet, living so close to that wickedness, he had become radically corrupted in his own mind and heart, and judgment. Which is a warning to us. A great warning. For we live very much in our own Sodom Gomorrah. And I, I speak not just of Portland or of Oregon. I speak of the Western world in this age we live in. This is Sodom and Gomorrah. And the devil is... Corrupting not just open, rabid residents of Sodom, but the professing invisible church. And even to some extent, actual Christians are getting confused and corrupted in their minds and judgment. So again, 2 Peter 2, God delivered righteous Lot who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. Filthy conduct. What kind of conduct was the conduct of the Sodomites? Well, you know, they weren't hospitable. That was filthy lack of hospitality. Filthy conduct. God's Word does not pull punches. We can't either. We need to speak to it. Now, the the Sodomites... Passions were filthy conduct. Lot's willing sacrifice of his daughters was filthy conduct. Verse 8, For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. And so we have the testimony, the Holy Spirit-inspired testimony of Second Peter, Peter himself, the apostle, Saying, despite what you see in Genesis 18 and 19, and this is Lot's low point. This is Lot's low point. It must be his low point. It cannot be the rule of his life, or he can have no claim on salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. We've got the worst snapshot of Lot's life. Kind of like people like, kind of like people often. Too many likes there, I'm not from California. Sorry, Californians, we love you. People often remember David's fall with Bathsheba to the exclusion of his valiant faith from the time that he was a young man fighting off lion and bear in faith in God. And then Goliath, while the rest of Israel's army stood quaking in their sandals, not boots, David said, the Lord has given me victory over lion and bear. Surely he'll give me victory over this uncircumcised Philistine. And he routed the whole Philistine army through slaying Goliath and chopping off his head. And yet, years later, after being a man declared to be after God's own heart, Years later, late in life, well-established as the king of Israel, he falls terribly. And it's a blight on his name, a blight on his rule. And often that's all people remember is that he beheld Bathsheba. He lost it after her. He inquired after her. He lay with her. He impregnated her and then he tried to cover his sin by calling Uriah home. Uriah was so righteous, he would not go into his wife. He slept on the front porch, even though David tried to get him drunk to send him into his wife. He slept on the front porch again because Uriah knew his place was on the field of battle while God's army was out there warring to advance God's kingdom. What am I doing back here, O king? When Uriah would not heed the king's admonishments to go see his wife, David sent Uriah with note in hand to Joab back on the battlefield. The note, of course, being Uriah's doom. Put Uriah toward the front of the battle, our valiant, honorable, glorious Servant of Yahweh. Put this warrior out front and then retreat back from him. Such treachery. It breaks my heart for Uriah, for David even, to have a man so valiant himself do, do such a vile, treacherous thing to a brother. And then in God's Amazing grace. He sends the prophet Nathan with his bony finger to point it into David's chest and says, you are the man. You are the man. And the Lord granted David radical repentance which we see in the Psalms. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Save me, Lord. Hold me fast. Don't let me go. And I... I will tell sinners of your mercy. That's his message. Humble, broken. Pleading upon God's mercy that he might be a messenger of God's mercy for others. And that's what he has been. And that's why God allowed him to fall so terribly. And I think in a very similar manner, that's why God allows Lot to, To be declared a righteous man, even in light of Genesis 18 and 19 and the abominations that are therein that are not all the abominations of the Sodomites. And so salvation and abomination, again, is the title of this message. How was Lot a righteous man? The same way the apostle Peter, who denied the Lord Jesus with cursing three times before he was crucified and then denied him again when he joined the Judaizers in their system of works. Righteousness is a righteous man. Peter denied Jesus with cursing three times while he was being beaten and crucified. After death, burial, and resurrection, after Peter is well-established in life, in ministry, in his role as an apostle, he goes apostate. He Judaizes. He adds works righteousness to Christ's finished works on the cross. And Paul has to go and rebuke him to his face before all. How is Peter saved? By grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone. And so because Peter was saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because he was indwelt by the Holy Spirit, when Paul came with his bony finger in Peter's chest, just like David with Nathan, Peter repented. If all we looked at in Peter's life was his cursing denial of Jesus, if that's the only snapshot we had, and his Judaizing apostasy we'd feel maybe differently about Peter instead of how I feel about him because we have this long narrative four Gospels and Peter's own writings. The book of Acts that tell us a whole lot about his life and faithfulness. And we even have extra biblical testimony that may or may not be true, but there's good reason to believe it's true that when it came time for Peter to die... He did follow Jesus as Jesus said he would, only he declared himself unworthy to die as his Lord died and insisted that he be crucified upside down. He finished well. We don't get the rest of Lot's life. I hope, I trust, he finished well. By grace alone, through faith alone. How was Lot a righteous man? The same way Samson was who despite his radical sin in the midst of his life seemed to finish well standing between two pillars with faith in Yahweh. Seemed to be repentant even as he brought down one final act of judgment as a judge of Israel upon the Philistines. Pulling those pillars down upon them and himself. Samson And a whole list of sinful characters are found in Hebrews 11's hall of faith. It is notable that Lot is not found in the hall of faith. He didn't make the hall of faith. But he did make 2 Peter 2, 7 and 8. And even though he's not in the hall of faith, Lot will be found in heaven. A righteous man. By grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And that's the only way any man or woman will be found in heaven. And so be careful not to judge lot. Be careful that you might have not the heart of Jonah, but the heart of Abraham. And be careful that you hold fast to the gospel, which is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, which we don't want to make license out of. License for all sorts of abominable sins. No, not at all. And the whole rest of God's word gives us no license to take Lot as an example. Hey, that's a good Christian life there. That's all good and fine. No, not at all. It's reprehensible. And if Lot's life was typified by that kind of living, those kind of choices, then he could have no confidence, no claim upon God. But again, we interpret Scripture with Scripture. So we look to 2 Peter to understand Genesis 18 and 19. And we know there, there are other things, a great many other things that went on in Lot's life. And thus we hold fast to Ephesians 2.8. And nine, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. It is grace alone through faith alone. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. And hear me, God made David the valiant warrior he was from the time he was a boy to the time that he died. And God allowed, he pulled back his hand of sustaining grace, and allowed David to fall in his own sin, that David might all the more not be just a valiant king and picture of Christ, not just be a valiant warrior and picture of Christ, but be a broken, fallen, wicked sinner saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the Christ who would come, whose kingdom will never end. David's sin brought all sorts of hardship upon his family. That is not hidden from us. And yet David was saved. The Lord did not take his Holy Spirit from him. That is a fuller picture of the results of abominable sin being unleashed in one's life. Terrible things happen. And even I would say in Genesis 18 19, we find the fruit of Lot's sin, Lot's compromise. Lots of selfishness. I'm going to take the best land. Oh, look, there's a prosperous city. I'll go see how I can do there. Oh, they're, they're awful, vile, and wicked. It, it burdens my soul, but I'm going to stay. It's beginning to corrupt me. Oh, it's corrupting my kids. Oh, but I'm going to stay. It's all fine. It's all good. I'm to, in fact, I'm going to become a leader in the land. I'm going to sit in the gates. And the corruption continues. Until finally we get to the end of chapter 19. and My goodness, that's why we had the children leave. I just don't want them to hear that. Hebrews 11 verse 7 says, By faith Noah, being divinely warned of things yet not seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became the heir of righteousness, which is according to faith. We get a pretty wide view on Noah's life. Preacher of righteousness, Building the ark, animals coming in, flood, the whole world perishing, no doubt Noah being the, the laughing stock until the rain began, till the flood waters rose. What if Noah's life had been condensed down? What if all we saw was that terrible fall after the ark came to rest on dry land when Noah drank that wine? What if that was the only picture we saw? Well, that's kind of what we're seeing in Lot's life. And yet we know Noah is in the hall of faith, and Noah is a preacher of righteousness, and that's one fall in the midst of a long life of righteousness. Verse 8 By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out of the place which he would receive as an inheritance. By faith, Sarah, says verse 11, and we know Abraham and Sarah are imperfect, and imperfect would be fairly accurate for Sarah, radically imperfect, grossly foolish, and again, wretchedly unloving toward his wife, Eh, my sister, Ah, once again, my sister, (laughs) putting her in great danger. And yet Abraham is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, as are all saved men and women. At the end of Hebrews sixteen or 11.16, it says, Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Why? Because verse 13, these all died in faith. It is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and we must hold steadfast to that. And they died in faith. They did not deny the faith. They did not deny the Lord. Hear me. The sins you commit pre-salvation were restrained by the sovereign hand of God. There's nothing in you that would keep you from being an absolute monster. It is providence and grace that kept you from living out the fullness of the sin within pre-salvation. Post-salvation, we, we understand that a little bit clearer, but still I think we get fuzzy. As if now we're saved and it's up to us. Try harder. Try harder. Well, it is up to us in one sense. We're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We're to study to show ourselves approved. We're to get beneath the Word and in the Word that it might renew our minds and our hearts that empower us to walk in the light therein. We're to cry out to the Lord in dependent prayer. And yet when we do those things, we know that it is God working within us both to will and to do His good pleasure. And so when we don't do those things at times as true born again Christians, when we don't do those things, that then doesn't mean we we were saved, we got unsaved or we were never saved in the first place because look, David fell. Look, Abraham did something radically foolish. It is by grace alone, through faith alone. And through the sustaining power of the spirit alone that we walk in righteousness. We should be very humble in that. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32, it says, What more shall I say? For the time would fail me to call Gideon and Barak and Samson and also Jephthah and also David and Samuel and the prophets. We skip down to verse 39. And all these, all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God had been provided something better for us that they should not be made perfect Apart from us. How do they receive a good testimony? Through faith, not works. Through faith. If our good testimony is dependent upon our works, then you know, we're running the same race as our Muslim friends and our Catholic friends and our Mormon friends. Run harder. Try hard. It's salvation by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone. If you add any works, your works in there, you nullify grace. You deny the tetelestai of Christ. We are radically corrupted. And except by the grace of God, our radical corruption will still come out after salvation. So, what do we do with this? Again, the danger is then opening the door to justify all sorts of abominable sins being present in the lives of Christians. And there is a great movement now, a great apostasy in Christ's church to redefine the Christian life, to redefine what born again is, to include those who are actively engaging in the sin of sodomy. Homosexuals, lesbians, so-called transgenders, people who are engaging in perversion, abomination, vile passions. In 1 Corinthians 6 verses 9 and 10 disallows that entirely. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? The unrighteous. That's been what we've been discussing the entire time. Righteous lot. Righteous lot. Do you not know the unrighteous? I've been arguing for righteousness by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, and I retain that argument. That is the gospel. However, James speaks to this and says that faith without works is dead. And here Paul speaks in a very like manner that you might profess salvation by grace alone, through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. And yet if you are living in, if you are abiding in, if this is the rule and tenor of your life, unrighteousness, then you have no claim on Christ. You are not born again. You are not walking with Christ in victory, having been born again, and falling on occasion into sin. No, you just are fallen. You have no victory. You're still dead in sin and trespass. There's a difference. Now, nobody at the point in time that we get the snapshot of Lot's life. Nobody at the point in time we get the snapshot of David's life with Bathsheba. Nobody at those junctures should be boasting of their salvation. No, if you have any god given Holy Spirit-empowered sense at all, you'll be crying out, Lord, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. You're in a position to question, how can I be saved? And you will only get the affirmative answer of yes, you are saved if indeed the Lord grants you repentance when God sends his Nathan to you, his Paul to you. And so the Lord is speaking to the entire Corinthian church, much like he sent Paul to speak to Peter in Galatia, much like he sent Nathan to speak to David. He says, do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Meaning you won't go to heaven. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor Sodomites. Again, the term Sodomite comes from Sodom and Gomorrah. Nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And so if you're living in these sins, do not be deceived. You'll not inherit the kingdom of God. Is it possible to fall in any of these sins? It is possible to fall in any of these sins. However, if you evidence unrepentance, meaning you're still living in that sin, that you are just still fallen. Should anyone be comfortable falling in these sins? No, being comfortable would be a good sign you're not born again and the spirit of God doesn't dwell within you. Notice fornication, idolatry, and adultery precede homosexuals and sodomites. We become in today's church much more comfortable with fornicators and adulterers, which is part of how we got to where we are now comfortable with homosexuals and sodomites. And when the Bible speaks of homosexual sodomites here, it's speaking um, not of those who are in a committed, or excuse me, those who are. Um, living a prolific, uncommitted homosexual lifestyle. That's a lie of the homosexual movement, that the sin here forbidden is a lack of monogamy between two homosexuals. You know, it's a non-monogamous relationship. No, no, the behavior is forbidden. The behavior is condemned, whether you're committed or not whether you profess to be in a mirage or not. So fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. If this is who you are, this is who you are, right? It's not that this is what you did at some point in time. You fell into it. It's who you are. You abide in it. If that's who you are, then you have no claim upon Christ. Tragically, years ago, I had to tell a man, look, you didn't fall again. You are just fallen. You've come one too many times saying, look, pastor, I fell again. No, you are just fallen. You do not evidence being born again from above. You need to cry out to God that he would grant you repentance and salvation, that you would confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Stop presuming upon grace. Stop presuming upon Christ's cross and his shed blood. You need to repent. That's Jesus' first word in his first sermon. Repent and believe the gospel. You need a change of heart, change of mind, change of direction that is real and consistent. That was true in ancient Corinth, and it's true today. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. It's interesting that the first word there is fornicators, right? And our homosexual community today wants to argue that the sin spoken of in this text is a a lack of a committed relationship between homosexuals. Well, what is fornication? (laughs) Fornication. Um, it's a lack of committed relationship between a man and a woman. What is adultery? It's a, a breach of the, the covenant. Um, and these words are clearly understood. What is idolatry? It's worshiping a false god. These words are all clearly understood. And then we come to homosexual sodomite and we want to heap obscurity in there. And yet, both within the context of Scripture and outside, These words are rightly understood, how the church has understood them for 2,000 years before our current apostasy took root. And so we are halfway through this sad story, and there is much more to tell, and there's much more to speak to regarding the sin of sodomy. We need this truth, saints. This is where Satan is attacking Mankind. This is where Satan is attacking the world. The West, the United States of America, Oregon, Portland, your children, your grandchildren. This has become a very powerful weapon in his arsenal against the souls of men. He wrecks their lives now. And he damns their souls with the the lie of this is how God made me. Or the lie, there is no God, and this is how I evolved. The lie that if it feels right, it can't be wrong. Lie upon lie. And we are reaping an ever-increasing whirlwind of destruction. And so, dear saints, take hope for there is salvation in the midst of a world full of abomination. And no one in that list of 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10 is outside of the, the reach of God's amazing grace. Take hope for the most vile of sinners, that they can be saved. Take hope for saints who fall in vile sin that they may yet by the grace of God get back up when God sends his Nathan or his Paul or 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10 to warn them, do not be deceived. And if they genuinely and truly repent and press on in faith, then you have good confidence that they are a believer saved who fell. If they press on in their sin, then they and you have good reason to say you never were born again to begin with. And you must repent and confess Christ as Lord, or you will perish. Do not be deceived. May God grant us the heart of Abraham. O Lord, if there's 50, would you spare? If there's 45, would you spare them? If There's but 10. A heart of mercy for abominable sinners. Knowing that but by the grace of God, we would be involved in a lifestyle of abomination or fall in a moment of abomination. Let us be humble and merciful and prayerful. O oh Lord, guard me. Guard me. For we know that we are prone to wander. Hold me fast, O oh Lord. Lest I blaspheme the God I love. Let us hear and heed the admonition to work out our salvation with fear and trembling fear of falling, left in our own strength, trembling, real fear. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, knowing, here's our confidence, knowing that it is God who works within you, both to will, even desire. Or to do His good pleasure, all to His glory. Father, we thank You for the power of Your Word, for the clarity of Your Word, rightly divided Scripture, interpreting Scripture. Grant us, Lord, humility. Grant us grace and mercy for our own souls and for the souls of others. Grant that any who are here today steeped in sin, slaves of sin, bound in sin, that you would set them free, Father. They would not be self-deceived. But, Father, that their eyes would see clearly today. And that you would rescue them today, Lord. Through the power of the gospel. Through the power of Jesus' resurrection. Through the power of the Holy Spirit. Regenerate them, Lord. Make them new creatures. The old past build all things made new. And, Lord, for any that are in Christ have walked consistently with Christ. Much like David, a long life of righteousness and faith. Who may have fallen, Lord. Or may yet. Grant, Lord, they get back up. They'd receive Nathan's bony finger in their chest. Not as a curse, but a blessing. And get back up, crying out, Take not thy Holy Spirit from me and press on to your glory. Telling sinners of your mercies. We pray to the mighty, matchless, In glorious name of Jesus, amen.